0: Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests here with me in the studio. First, I have Riley Lorimer, an Associate Editorial Manager with the Church Historians Press. Welcome, Riley. Thanks, Ben. We also have with us Shaylin Back, who works here at the Mormon Channel. She's recently had an opportunity to read Volume 1 and will share her thoughts and questions. Welcome, Shaylin. Thank you. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about chapters 31 and 32 of Saints. Where we're going to learn a little bit more about the difficulties that were faced by the church during the Missouri period. Riley, one of the characters that we meet in Saints is a woman by the name of Lydia Knight. Can you tell us a little bit about her and what's happening in the story in chapters 31 and 32?
1: Yeah, so uh, Lydia Knight is the wife of Newell Knight. She and her husband came to join the Saints in Missouri, and when chapter 31 opens, Lydia Knight is concerned and and frightened because the Missouri militia is set up at the border of the town of Far West where she's living and uh, threatening to uh, wreak all sorts of havoc in the town. And what eventually happens is her husband is called to go meet in the town square with the rest of the Latter-day Saint men, and Lydia is left at home, not just with her small children but with two Mormon men whom she's hiding in her home because they'd been um, involved in a previous skirmish with with the Missouri militia and are afraid for their lives. And so she's sort of on her own as we open up this chapter, fearful for her life, the lives of these men, and the lives of her children.
2: As I read that, I just can't imagine the terror that she felt. On one hand, she's doing something good by hiding these men who she knows are good. But then she has a family. That's so scary. I don't think that's something that a lot of us can relate to.
1: It, I, I guess it, it's a dilemma that she had to face, right? She wanted to protect these men who she felt hadn't done anything wrong. But is she doing that at the cost of putting her children in danger? And it's a really hard decision to make. Right.
0: Her answers to the, the people who come to her door, I also love. Yeah. Because she, she's not going to lie. But she also doesn't want to give up her prisoners. So she's very careful in that she says, you've already taken my husband. And they say, do you have any guns? And she said, he took his gun with him.
1: Right. So these men are coming, these militia men are coming house to house looking for Latter-day Saint men who haven't come out to the town square to be captured and looking for any guns. And they also took all sorts of other things. But when they come to her door, she says... My husband's not here. He took his gun with him, both of which are true. Right. Uh, and then they ask her, do you have any men in the house? And she just keeps saying, my husband's gone. He took his gun with him right. and trying to protect these men in her house. And finally, her kids, her small children who are standing behind her, get nervous and start crying because these sort of rough men are on their porch. And Lydia says, shouts at them and says, go away. Can't you see that my children are afraid? And they sort of leave sheepishly. I think that takes incredible courage, but I think her boldness pays off. She's
0: gutsy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that just grit that she is not going to put up with this uh, from these ruffians. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book um, that talks about what happens after the the men, including Lydia Knight's husband, are uh, taken
3: away by the militia. The Missouri militia wasted little time breaking into houses and tents, rummaging through chests and barrels, and searching for weapons and valuables. They carried off bedding, clothes, food, and money. Some built bonfires from house logs, fence rails, and barns. Others shot cattle, sheep, and hogs, and left them to die in the streets.
0: I guess for me, as I read this, it just is a really stark situation that I think maybe you know, we say, oh, there was there was Missouri violence and there were mobs. When you're killing, in, in this time, if you're killing someone's farm animals, you're killing their livelihood, and they're just leaving them to rot in the street. This is pretty horrific.
1: Yeah, and I think it's done with, a, with an intent to intimidate the Latter-day Saints, and not just to ruin their livelihood, but also to show that the Latter-day Saints were not in power, that they were under the power of this militia. It was done intentionally to make them afraid. And I think that it it worked in a lot of cases.
0: So they round these men up and it's decided we're just going to shoot them all at sunrise. Then there is a a general by the name of Donovan. Can you tell us who are the players here and what happens to really save the lives of these men?
1: So uh, General Lucas, who's in command of the Missouri militia, has his men have come into town and they've Rounded up all of the Mormon men in the town square, and then they then they go through and steal all of the animals and the and the arms and whatever. And then, like as you say, they put on sort of a show trial, and they don't actually have authority to try Joseph Smith or these other Mormon men because General Lucas and his men are uh, part of the Missouri State Militia, and don't they don't have authority to try a civilian like
0: Joseph Smith? Judicial authority, right? They're just
1: they're not part of the state apparatus, the right. judicial apparatus. And sorry, how many men were in this group
2: of prisoners? Did you say all the Mormon men?
1: Uh it's all the Mormon men who were in, in far the, west. Oh wow. Yeah. And except the ones who were apparently in hiding. <laughs> but so they bring them all up and they don't they don't run a proper trial. It's not like there are lawyers and witnesses. In fact, the only lawyer present is Alexander Donovan. And he's also a general in the militia. And he's opposing this sham of a trial and telling General Lucas, you don't have authority to to try these people. Lucas, as you say, um, pays no attention to him and condemns all these Mormon men to be executed, to be shot to death. And Alexander Donovan, he's not a Latter-day Saint. You know, he's, it's not like he's on the saint's side in a certain way, but he's a person of principle. And he says, I'll be damned if I will have any of the honor or the disgrace of it, meaning the execution of these prisoners. And he pledges that he will withdraw his troops that he was commanding before dawn, the time when they were appointed to be executed. He refuses to carry out the order of the execution, pulls his men out of Far West, and General Lucas sort of loses his nerve and doesn't execute all these men and instead takes them off to Jackson County.
0: There's another scene here. We, we watched Joseph being marched through town. Again, we kind of have to put ourselves back in the time frame. When you're arrested now, they just put you in the back of the police car and drive you down to the jail, right? Well, this isn't what happens. They march Joseph into town to his home. He sees his wife. It's truly heartbreaking scene with his wife and his children. Then he's, he's put in this cart, and there's this commotion about the whole thing, and they're about to move out when one of my other truly favorite women in this story comes into play, and that's Lucy. What what does Lucy have to say to these men?
1: Yeah, there's a... So as you say, Joseph has, and Hiram both have been put in a big wagon with a heavy canvas cover on it, and uh, there's a big crowd surrounding surrounding the wagon. All of a sudden, sort of a a loud voice comes over the crowd and it's Lucy Max Smith saying, I am the mother of the prophet. Is there not a gentleman who will assist me through this crowd? And she somehow makes it through the crowd, comes up to the wagon. And at the front of the wagon, Hiram pushes his hand out underneath the canvas cover to hold his mother's hand. And immediately Lucy's pushed back and threatened. Um, if she doesn't move away from, from the wagon, but then Lucy makes her way to the back of the wagon where Joseph is seated and she says, Joseph, I cannot bear to go until I hear your voice. And so through this canvas cover, he, you know, he puts his hand out again and she holds his hand and he says, God bless you, mother. And then the wagon rolls away. And it's just a heartbreaking scene. I don't have, I have a tiny child. I don't have adult children, right. but the idea of your... Um, your child being taken from you without the opportunity even really to say a proper goodbye is just heartbreaking. Well,
2: and I don't realize, I guess I never realized how much truly was at stake because I feel like a lot of these stories that I've kind of heard, you know, throughout my life on and off, they kind of blend together and it's hard for me to separate really all the persecution that they go through and they were really going to shoot all those men and General Donovan, is that what his yeah. name is? He, he stopped that. I guess I didn't realize how much was at stake that all those men were going to die. He's, and He's then, really well, one
0: of the heroes of Mormon history. yeah,
2: Definitely. Well, and then with Lucy, I mean, I have tiny kids too, but it's just like any member of your family, yeah. if you, they're leaving and you don't know what's going to happen to them, I can't even imagine.
1: Well, and the thing that I thought a lot about reading this, these chapters too is that we talk a lot about uh, religious freedom and sometimes... I sort of like turn my brain off and think, oh yeah, we're not really we do okay <laughs> these <laughs> days, and but it's really strongly embedded in the history of the church because it wasn't just that church members were not being allowed to pray as they wished or whatever. I mean, they were being they were being hunted, they were being killed for for their beliefs, and I think it's it helps you understand the church's strong commitment to religious freedom to recognize the way that the state of Missouri, you know, like an actual governmental entity, targeted the Latter-day Saints, and not just sanctioned, but sponsored their, their murder and driving them from, from the state. It's really pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm.
0: Another scene that I would call remarkable is when Joseph's in jail. He's actually not in Liberty Jail yet. He's in Richmond, Missouri, and he's incarcerated with the other men, and the guards are outside, uh, Shailen, when you read this, did anything seem new a- about what this book revealed that they were saying?
2: Yeah, it would. You you can see where Joseph is coming from, having to listen to them talk about his friends, his family, the people that he knows very well and very personally. And I think that's what stood out to me too. It's not, they're not just talking about people. Yeah. They're talking about people it's, that he that
1: he knows. Well, and I think often when we tell this story, I think it gets presented as though, oh, maybe the guards were swearing or something. Right. The- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. This is how, this I,
0: is Smith, I, this is how right? I always heard the story. Yeah. Is
1: Their language is foul. Don't
0: use bad language. Yeah. That is not what's going no,
1: on No, I mean, they're I talking. I mean, part of it. Yeah, but the, the guards outside the door are bragging and talking about raping and killing Latter-day Saints, men and women. And I think it's no wonder that Joseph Smith couldn't abide... Mm -hmm. sitting in the same room listening to that.
0: Let, Let me play a little clip from the book as this moment happens where Joseph just can't take it anymore.
3: Suddenly, he heard chains clank beside him as Joseph rose to his feet. Silence, ye fiends of the infernal pit, the prophet thundered. In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you and command you to be still. I will not live another minute and hear such language. The startled guards gripped their weapons and looked up. Joseph stared back at them, radiating majesty. Cease such talk, he commanded, or you or I die this instant.
2: And they did stop, which is amazing to me because the kind of men that they were and the things that they were talking about, they didn't care what Joseph Smith thought. Do you know what I mean? And so there was so much power that they stopped.
0: That's amazing. At some point, you you have to think that deep inside them— there was something that said, this is just not right.
1: Well, and you have, I mean, I don't know, I wasn't there, but I think that you may be right, and that having someone call out their indecency and their cruelty so strongly and boldly, I think it startled them.
0: Let me read, perhaps, this is not in Saints, by the way. I read a a biography of Parley P. Pratt, and I I believe it's his autobiography, and I, just got, I have to read you. He was in the cell with the prophet, and this is what he said of this moment. I have seen the ministers of justice clothed in magisterial robes, while life was suspended on a breath in the courts of England. I have witnessed a congress in solemn session to give laws to nations. I have tried to conceive of kings, of royal courts, of thrones and crowns, and of emperors assembled to decide the fate of kingdoms, but dignity... And majesty have I seen but once, as it stood in chains at midnight in a dungeon in an obscure village of Missouri. First of all, Parley's awesome. He He's <laughs> such a, a great writer and orator. But I, I love that feeling that he, it stayed with him. I mean, for his life, he remembered this moment where Joseph just couldn't take it anymore and rebuked these evil men.
1: And I think part of that is because Parley himself wanted to say something and could. couldn't he records that he wanted to say something and couldn't, either didn't know what to say or was afraid or whatever. And it was Joseph Smith who had both the courage and, and the wherewithal to stand up and rebuke the guards.
0: It's an incredible story. So our listeners will also remember in a previous episode, we talked about a mission with Wilford Woodruff and his wife, Phoebe, that they've gone up to Maine, just off the coast of the Fox Islands. They're, they're moving down uh, with these saints that are immigrating to be with the larger body of the church. Phoebe has, a, has an interesting experience. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so Phoebe Woodruff gets really sick as they're on their way to, to far west. She has a terrible fever, and so they stop in an inn, and she's trying to rest, trying to recover, and she's getting sicker and sicker and she's certain that she is going to die and wilford gives her a blessing but then the very next day her breathing stops altogether and she says that she felt her spirit leave her body and she she records sort of an an out of body experience in some way she's sort of watching the scene and she sees wilford look at her body and she sees two angels come into the room and the angels offer her a choice. She can move on to the spirit world or she can stay with her family. She can continue to to live. And she emphatically decides when she as she's thinking of her husband and her daughter, she emphatically decides to stay. And at that moment Wilfred Woodruff anoints her head with oil and gives her a blessing and she begins to breathe again. And she records that as she opens her eyes she sees the angels leave the room.
2: Wow. Well, and it doesn't she say that when she was given the choice, it was with the understanding that on Earth she would have great trials. Yeah,
1: the, her, and she that her life would not be easy as it indeed was not. Right. It's a brave choice, and I and I I sort of love the the idea that she had a choice. Right. It sort of underscores the the doctrine of agency mm-hmm. that. She gets to decide in this one instance whether she's going to move on or whether she's gonna stay with her family. And I think she makes a very courageous choice.
2: Yeah. Cause I don't think that's necessarily gonna happen to us <laughs> that we'll be given that choice, yeah. you know, when we're actually our spirits leave I think our body, most but are not. Right. But I feel like we still have to make that choice. I don't know, that's what I was thinking I was as I was reading it, that we know that our life's gonna be hard. Right. But we still, you know, we have all these resources that make it worth it. Right
0: after after Joseph is, leaves Richmond he's incarcerated in Liberty Jail. Um this is probably a scene that a, a lot of members of the church will have a picture that comes into their mind. The the low ceiling, the thick walls, it's dark, it's it's an awful place. The church owns the site today. You can visit it as a historic site. What what was it like there? Can you can you just give us a picture what were they experiencing? Were they all alone? Did people come? Was there any communication? What What was it like?
1: So there were several men who were imprisoned together in in Liberty Jail, and they're essentially in a dungeon. They're in sort of the basement area of this of this jail. You have to enter through a trap door in the floor on the ground floor, and we uh, we've been told lots of times. People say lots of times that they couldn't stand upright, and that's probably not actually true when church historians came to the site in the in the late 1800s it's about it was about six and a half feet tall the ceiling so it's a low ceiling but they probably could stand up straight but it was still a pretty awful place there's two tiny windows that are covered with bars and up high toward the ceiling not a lot of fresh air um, it's dark it's they describe it as having a stench. The smell oh, was really
0: sure. It's not like they had a shower. Awful. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And
1: I mean, there's there's several men in there. They can't bathe, and when and they actually do receive some visitors. Emma Smith comes more than once, and um, Hiram Smith's wife Mary Mary Fielding Smith comes to visit with Hiram's um, Hiram and Mary's newborn son Joseph F. Smith. It was the first time Hiram had met his young son. Um, Mary had uh, given birth while Hiram had been away. Well, and what I didn't realize about that visit
2: is that they stayed the night. Yeah. <laughs> I have new, fairly newborn twins, yeah. and I just can't imagine having a baby in those right. conditions through the night.
1: Yeah. And it sounds awful. It's cold mm-hmm. down there also. And they, they describe trying to make a fire, and it just fills the whole room with smoke. And, and they
2: just have dirty hay yeah. to sleep on. Or-
1: right. And, but they, the women record uh, being sort of shocked at the appearance of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith and the others. They're filthy and they're gaunt. They're not eating well. The quality of the food is very poor. It made them sick sometimes when they ate it. And so, I mean, it was pretty dismal circumstances.
0: While this is all happening, the saints left in Far West are evacuating. And help us understand this a little bit, but it, it seems like those with means were able to get out fairly quickly. Maybe they had horses and teams and, and they were able to make their way across the Mississippi River to Quincy, Illinois. Right. There are others who maybe are less fortunate, or they just haven't been able to get things put in order as quickly. And what are what are they to do? Who, who's going to help these people?
1: Well, so initially, the saints have been ordered to leave the state. But uh, the order, or at least the enforcement of the order, came right at the beginning of winter. And so they're sort of given a reprieve, and they say, oh, you can stay till springtime um, because else they're going to be walking through the snow right. to get out. And, but even, even as the winter is still going on, the climate becomes less and less safe for the saints. Not, not the weather climate, right. But the sort of the conditions there, um, with the other Missourians, another militia leader doesn't stop mobs who are coming through and saying, if any, if you're not out by the end of February, you're all going to die. And so this is when, as you say, people who had some money got together teams of horses or whatever and crossed the river into Quincy. Um, But there are lots of Latter-day Saints who having left all they had in the East or elsewhere and come to Far West, they don't have the means to just go buy a team of horses and take all of their belongings across the river. And they're stranded. And so Brigham Young...
0: Let me,
3: in fact, no, let ahead. me play
0: a little quote here uh, that, from the book that talks about Brigham Young's response um, to this situation.
3: On January 29th, Brigham urged the saints in Far West to covenant to help each other evacuate the state. We will never desert the poor, he told them, till they shall be out of the reach of the exterminating order. To ensure that every saint was taken care of, he and the other leaders in Far West appointed a committee of seven men to direct the evacuation the committee collected donations and supplies for the poor and made a careful assessment of the saints' needs.
1: One of the things that I love about that passage that you read is that Brigham Young recommends that the saints covenant with one another to help each other evacuate the saint, uh, evacuate out of the state. And I think we think about covenants as being rituals, something you do in the temple or your baptismal covenant. Um, but a covenant is as we always talk about, right? It's a two-way promise, but, and it's, right, it's right. consecrated by God, right? It's made holy. And so I love the idea of saints making a holy promise, a holy commitment to one another that they won't abandon each other, and then they'll make sure that everyone makes it out. I think that's really beautiful.
0: Do you guys remember a couple of general conferences ago, Elder Kieran's talk?
1: About the refugee crisis. Yes. Yeah.
0: And when I, when I read this chapter the picture that came into my mind was Elder Kieran talking about the same thing. We're not going to leave the poor behind. This is our mission as Christians, to reach out and to lift and to love. And, and yes, in this instance, we were talking about fellow church members. In Elder Kieran's talk, he was expanding that a bit to, to just other people, our, our fellow brothers and sisters. But I, I love that that ideal is with us still. It didn't end with Brigham Young and the Saints on the banks of the Mississippi. It's still here.
1: And they weren't perfect at it then and we're not perfect at it now. Right. But that's what we're asked to do is to covenant that we'll all take care of one another.
0: One of my favorite parts of this entire book is the story of Amanda Barnes-Smith. It's a tragic story, but I wanted to conclude today's episode with this moment with her son, Alma. Can you just remind our listeners, it may have been a little while since they heard the episode, what's happened with Alma and what's Amanda Smith done about it?
1: So Amanda Smith and her family were at Hunts Mill when uh, Missourians attacked the settlement and a number of Latter-day Saints, including uh, her husband and one of her other sons, were killed um, in, this, in this horrible attack and her son, Alma, was shot in the hip and it's this terrible wound and it's not healing. And as, as we said before, they're getting to the point where they can't stay in Missouri anymore.
0: She kind of just doesn't know what to do. Yeah, like,
1: well, and they're uh, one of those families that don't have the right, means they don't to have, have the a means. team and a wagon and everything. Right. And, and they're being threatened.
0: And she is worried, what if I, if I drag this kid out, he can't walk, like, is he gonna make it? She's really in a horrible situation.
1: Well, and it's the, the environment is so threatening too. She, uh, in, in Far West, they're not even able to pray in any kind of visible way because they're threatened by the mobs when they do. And so she's feeling trapped in and afraid and she doesn't know what to do. She goes out and sort of hides herself and prays and has come to her mind lines from a, a hymn that she loved. And it's uh, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I cannot desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. And the words of that hymn strengthened her and gave her some comfort. And But as she's finishing, she finishes her prayer, she's going to fetch some water. And she hears a big commotion. Her kids start screaming.
3: Let's listen to a little clip of that moment. Not long after, as she was fetching water from a stream, she heard her children screaming in the house. Terrified, she rushed to the door and saw Alma running around the room. I'm well, Ma, I'm well, he cried. That's incredible. Because he,
2: it's not like he even had a priesthood blessing at that moment. It was his mom's prayer. You know, and I wonder if she, this came to my mind too, I wonder if she felt like Daniel when it's like, you can't pray, we can't see you praying. And yeah, she still prays. I think I would just do it in my mind. But she had so much faith, you know, that she was able to pray. And her son, who couldn't walk, was right. running around the room. It's well, incredible. And,
1: it, and not, I mean, just before this, her son, her son's wound she describes as being raw still. Mm. But cartilage grows in place where the bone was supposed to be, and he's able to walk. And she pretty immediately packs up her family and this, this is actually one of my favorite parts of the story. I love the part about Alma, but I also love her grit. So Amanda Warren Smith goes to the home of a mob member, a Missourian, who had stolen her horse. Right. And she demands that he return the animal. And he says that he'll give it to her if she pays him $5 for the feed that he'd given it to the horse in the meantime. After he stole it. Right, after he stole it. Right. And she just went into the backyard and took the horse and went away. <laughs> I can't imagine, honestly, I can't imagine having the guts to do that um, yeah. in, in the kind of climate that she was in, where she was being constantly threatened with her life. But she knew that her family needed that horse to pull them, pull their belongings. And, and so she went and got it done. Yeah. And that miracle of her son healing was probably just
2: like conviction the to her that booster, that is yeah. what she is supposed to do. And she needs that horse, and nothing's going to stop
0: her. Yeah. By the way, after I read the story, I thought I'm pretty sure I know this hymn. It's how firm a foundation. Right. It's still in the hymn book. Like I'm going to challenge my ward to sing all seven verses because I want to remember that so we always stop at four. I don't right. know. I don't know why we do that. But we. All, I mean, maybe people just don't want to sing too much. But, all
1: seven verses of that one are great, though.
0: Uh, yeah. So we're going to sing all seven, and I'm going to remember Amanda Barnes Smith and, and that moment with her son. As we close out these two chapters of saints, the saints are in Quincy many of them and they're kind of scattered around but it's pretty obvious they've got to find someplace soon and we leave the the chapter with Bishop Partridge Edward Partridge and a man by the name of Isaac Galland and they're discussing some land for sale in commerce
1: a swampy little (laughs) patch of bend of the river a little ways away from from Quincy
0: but it's for sale
1: it's for sale and it's available right now
0: (laughs) it's available right now so we're going to leave it there, and in our next episode, we're going to discuss this, the saints moving north from Quincy, moving to commerce, and building what will become Nauvoo, the city beautiful. I'd like to thank Riley for being here with us today, and thank you also to Shaylin. Thanks to all of you for tuning in out there, and please join us again next time as we discover more of saints. You can always find out more at saints.lds.org, where you can get the latest chapters, videos, and read the topics, as well as you can listen or read the book in the Church History section of the Gospel Library app. You can download this podcast and subscribe to many others at mormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on lds.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days.